Well, tonight we come into Revelation chapter 10. Is that right? You're thinking about it. And uh, we're going to handle the entire chapter, all 11 verses. Uh, It is an event that uh, is important for a couple of reasons. Um, Sometimes by what it says, sometimes by what it doesn't say. Um, And uh, the reason we... This is the second time we're going to be focusing on something that's absent. Um, but it's not just that it's not there. We're told it's not there. So it's, it's not just uh, an argument from omission. Um, we are told directly to look for this, that this is specifically something that was omitted. The last time was when um, we found no one in heaven and earth that could open the scroll. And so we are directed to an omission. Somebody's missing. Uh, something's missing. Uh, something is uh, uh, not uh, declared or not uh, evident in uh, the location there in heaven at the time uh, between Christ's uh, arrival to heaven or arrival to earth and his sacrifice and arrival back in heaven. So we come to chapter 10. Again, we're going to have another one of those omissions. It also becomes a uh, kind of a transitional passage for us, and there's going to be two different perspectives that we want to address. Uh, Obviously, I'm taking one of them uh, and not the other, uh, and we'll explain that more so probably later on when we get to about chapter 14, 15. Um, But we will introduce that principle tonight of why we uh, do not see repetition here, but rather um, a transition that does uh, force us to start thinking of in a different time frame uh, that's coming up upon us. And uh, before we get into this, let's go, go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for uh, your word before us. And we pray that your spirit might direct this time to be uh, profitable to your saints, uh, benefit to us, but also to your glory. And we do rejoice in the privilege we have to... Um, have your word before us and uh, easily accessible in many different forms and Lord we uh, know that that alone isn't really sufficient but that we also need your spirit within us to enlighten us to its truth and to its uh, uh, application to our lives and we pray that he might have liberty to work even now in Christ Jesus name amen well what we have is um, another sight arriving from heaven. And uh, just to lay our timeline out, um, this is the big screen. Um, We're going to uh, move very quickly. Just a very quick review. We are right after the sixth trumpet. And so the sixth trumpet judgment has already sounded, and we have this intermission sort of thing um, that uh, we are anticipating the seventh trumpet, but there's some activity from heaven. Remember after the sixth seal, there was uh, intermission. There was a big gap between the 5th and 6th um, where we were told, wait, there was a time element involved. Uh, between the 6th and 7th seal, there was this activity of heaven uh, in which we were a part of it because we arrived in heaven uh, as the last part of that break between the 6th and 7th seal. Now between the 6th and 7th trumpet, we also are going to have a gap. And so you can see the 7th the angel has moved way over there. One, two, three, yeah. Some angels move way over the edge of our screen so we can have room for some activity that uh, needs to happen in heaven prior to its sounding. 
and uh, chapter 10 and going into chapter 11 will be the, the uh, information that will be given. Uh, it will really uh, introduce the information that's going to start in chapter 11, but really take us all the way, even to some degree, to chapter 17. We're going to have to be inclusive of that, uh, but certainly chapter 13 and 14. And so let's go ahead and uh, press in a little tighter. Uh, on our timeline so we can look in this time frame. Remember, we ended with this very uh, frightening condition of man that given all of that happened, they did not repent. And uh, that's going to play out here in a little while when uh, God is going to send them yet another uh, declaration of the gospel. Um, But still, we find no response of any kind of repentance, any kind of sorrow, uh, any humbling of oneself before God. But we find rigid uh, and hard-heartedness uh, there among men. So coming out of heaven, we find in verse chapter 10, let's just read through chapter 10, it's only 11 verses. It says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding, the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So we have this uh, intermission, if you will, this uh, event that really needs to happen prior to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And we have another character involved. And again, we don't see a symbolism here, but we do see some uh, authority and what it's going to encompass. And so we find a, a angel arriving, and he is described in these very earthly terms. Uh, we, we designate him really as kind of the angel of the environment, some of creation itself. Um, some see within him a picture of Christ. Um, because of the connection, but, but it's evident that he is a, a, a mighty angel, of course. Uh, it describes him that way, um, but that he is a servant of, the, of God. And so we find him representative of a lot of things that we think of in earthly terms. And if you go through chapter 10, verses in the description and uh, in the... Uh, swearing that he does, that in the statement that he makes, we, we can see the connections. And we make them very quickly. We recognize that these are really earthly things 
that he's representing, that he is uh, enveloped with. So we find the uh, clothes of the cloud, uh, rainbow on his head, and we obviously can go very quickly and associate those um, with one another, face like the sun, uh, and his feet like pillars of fire. Again, not that they were, but they were something about all of these, uh, the, the face and the feet that uh, had uh, comparisons to the sun and fire. And again, the emphasis throughout the trumpets has been on fiery judgment of God. Um, but the clothes of the cloud and rainbow on his head is not using similar metaphor. Uh, and so we see those as, as what John saw. And he saw this mighty angel coming. We see him uh, putting one foot um, in the on land, one foot in sea, while he was in the heavens. And that is not the abode of God up on that gold timeline that we have, but rather the atmospheric heavens is, is more likely what they're describing. And so he's there, and we find him really representing uh, the elements. I want to jump down to verse 5, um, because we find in verse 2 that he set a right foot on the sea, a left foot on the land. Um, both, both of those elements, we've seen uh, that progression uh, in the trumpets where we find the assault on the plant life on the land. We see the assault on the oceans. We see the assault on uh, the fresh waters. Those are all going to be brought up again here. And we find in, uh, again in verse 5 and 6, uh, we find him standing on the sea and on the land. Uh, raising his hand to heaven, swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created, and now well, we have three things. Created. Heaven and the things that are in it. This, again, is not the abode of God that we're referring to, but the heavens, the, the atmosphere, and the things that are in it. The birds, the, the, the flying things, uh, creatures that are in the air. Um, and so we've had the heavens and the things that are in it, the one who created that. We have the earth and the things that are in it, and again, that's referring uh, not to the globe, the earth, but rather to um, dry land. And then the sea and the things that are in it. And so we have the same trio, the same combination that we see in his description of the, the clouds and the sun, the rainbow. We find his feet on, on land and on sea. Uh, and the fiery uh, representation there, like, uh, feet like fire, pillars of fire. And we find <coughs> him now recognizing that the Lord is God over creation. Every facet of it, from the heavens, from the atmosphere and beyond it. You extend that into space uh, as far as that goes. Um, the earth, the land, and the sea. And so this has been the, uh, this, these elements have taken the brunt of God's wrath. Uh, certainly men have been punished in the midst of that, but these elements have taken the brunt and has been the origin of the means by which he expresses his wrath on the earth. And so we find these heavenly bodies dropping onto the earth and creating the, the cataclysm that we have described for us throughout the trumpet judgments. Well, now there's almost a, a uh, hold up a second um, because we're about to finish this. Kind of like with the seals. Remember the seals? It says, just wait a second. 
We've got something that has to be done before you break that last seal. Before we go on and get into God's, we have to get this done. And they had to seal the 144,000. We had to have the arrival of the church, the redeemed in heaven. And uh, that statement, just, just wait a second before we, we conclude the seals and open the scroll. Uh, We've got to get a couple of these important matters taken care of. And very similarly, um, there's going to be this declaration that um, just a second before, with, with the last trumpet, the mystery of God is going to be finished. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But uh, there's something that needs to be addressed first. Before we get into the uh, very end of God's judgment, the last half, if you will, uh, we really consider this uh, because of the timing associated with the two witnesses that we're going to be introduced to in chapter 11, that we're at about the halfway point of the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath, we um, are introduced to another element. And that element, yeah, it's right there, is a book, a little book. It is a little book. Here, I can zoom in. There. That's a little bigger. I can zoom in even closer, can't I? Now it's a big book. That's bad. Pixelated. Yeah, it's a very big book. It's not that big. So I want to get right there. That's where I want. So we're, uh, attention is drawn to a little book that is open. And uh, again, it's open because we are in the midst of God's judgment. We are in the midst of the end. We are really, and maybe it should have been open almost to the last page or so, um, but that's okay. I didn't tell you that. We were discussing whether we wanted it open or closed to begin with anyway, but uh, we're gonna have, the Bible describes it. He has an open book. We are well into it. This is not something new. This is something that we are already involved in. Um, and, and so the, the openness of the book tells us that we that this is really a, his uh, representation of where we are at in the judgments of God. And uh, he is, it becomes the center focus in the balance of the chapter here in a little bit. But we find that uh, as he comes with this little book, he makes uh, a shout. And we are not told the contents of that. And I address that a little bit. So we have, when he shouts, seven thunders begin sounding. Very much like the seven trumpets, we have seven thunders sounding out. And this is where we have our uh, argument for omission. Uh, what, is, what are these? What does it mean? Uh, and very much like Daniel was told to seal up um, his prophecies until a certain generation comes, we are told to seal up or John was told to seal up uh, what the seven thunders uttered. We don't know what they declared, and um, we're not going to guess. What we can recognize is these are associated with the work of God within this period of time of, of either, and it can fall into either one of two categories, either further judgments that he is invoking on the earth, uh, which I tend not to uh, hold to, uh, I hold rather more than likely to uh, a position that would view the seven thunders as a representation of God's righteousness in doing what he is doing. That, but we have this sealed up and it is reserved for one group of people. And I would contend that much of the seven thunders content likely um, really only uh, applies to 
national Israel who is still on the earth. That they are the only people we're looking at that we will anticipate being redeemed before this, the, at the next revelation of Christ. That when Christ arrives on earth um, at the end of these seven years uh, following the Battle of Armageddon, we have national Israel responding. And I think it's no mistake that following the seven thunders, we are going to find an introduction to the two witnesses. We're going to see uh, some more work with the temple. We're going to, a description, a measurement of that. We're going to see the 144,000 revisited. All of those things. And so I would tend to tie those things back to the seven thunders. That whatever they declared, I, I would contend that one very strong option is that their declaration was for future Israel in the midst of God's wrath for them to get an understanding of what is about to happen with the preparation of receiving their Messiah in about three and a half years. Remember, at the three and a half year mark, we are right on the cusp of the man of sin breaking his treaty with uh, the nations, not just Israel, really all the nations. And so they're going to break this treaty with Israel, uh, and we're going to have some serious problems. We're going to have the two witnesses hunted. We're going to have the 144,000 martyred. Um, we have all of this transpiring. Uh, Israel seems to be kind of dull and non-repentant, um, but I, I would contend that because of the Jewish content of what's to come very quickly, that the seven thunders likely uh, are sealed up and they are really intended for that body of saints, uh, or soon-to-be saints, that body of, of redeemed people who God will call to himself and be uh, during the millennial kingdom, uh, God's people, and will receive Christ as their Messiah uh, with joy and gladness, having uh, wrongly placed their trust in uh, a false Messiah. And so we have the seven thunders. We, we are told that we don't, don't write down, but they are important. They are, they are a vital part of this, uh, the events going on here. Um, they are uh, directed by the voice of the, of the mighty angel. Uh, there's some aspect that he generates those or, or uh, initiates them. And we are not allowed to be privy to their content. Uh, and so uh, my, my derivation is based upon what I see coming in the next few chapters. And certainly it could have other uh, ramifications as well that I can't discount. You can't discount anything, any theory, really. Um, so we come to uh, the seven thunders sounding, and now having heard those and not knowing what they say, we are introduced to the last half of verse 6. And uh, really the last phrase of verse 6. It says that... Um, there should be no delay, there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. And so we have this, this declaration that as soon as we get to that seventh trumpet, that the mystery of God is really finished and that there shouldn't be a, a long delay. Um, we're not going to talk about uh, generations, years. We're, gonna, we're really talking about a very brief time, much like the very brief time between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. 
a very brief period, but very important period. And so um, here we, and a whole chapter written there in that period, but here we have a very brief period. There's not going to be a lot of delay. We're not going to see an extensive time of respite for people on the earth. They're going to get hammered again by the contents of the seventh trumpet, um, which is going to be inclusive of some bold judgments. And with it, with the, this is the last uh, presentation of the, of the finishing of the mystery of God. There's not going to be uh, any undisclosed information. That is, that in the, in the open book that we have here, um, there's not much left. Once you hear that seventh trumpet, its contents are declared. Once um, we, it is uh, poured out uh, in the midst of the seven bowls, and we're going to see that there is no mystery left. Everything is laid open. There's, uh, uh, everything is revealed. And uh, the, the conclusion for men is, is set. It's established. It really has already been set for the majority the only ones left that have a real opportunity for redemption um, are the people of Israel. That's why I still associate those thunders with them. They're the only ones that need to hear a message. And similarly with the angel that we saw this in this morning's message uh, sharing the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth, we have uh, a completion on the very near horizon that all that he declared to his servants of prophets would be wrapped up, tied up, and finished um, with this seventh trumpet sound and what it produces in the earth. But before we get to that, uh, there's not going to be a long delay. There's not, gonna, there's not much left. The book's open, and it's probably in the last chapter, uh, the last couple chapters of this open book, this angel's carrying. We come to... Um, our focus and attention is drawn to the book. So we're drawn to this, this uh, element and what it represents. And much of this sounds very much, hopefully, like something you've read before in a book called Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a similar engagement with a scroll. Uh, and similarly, that it was going to create bitterness in his stomach. Uh, and the scroll, the book, is really a representation of of the revelation of God, uh, specifically for his judgments. And his judgments are sweet tasting to... Oops, I hit the wrong clicker just a second. There we go. Are sweet tasting to some. Who are they sweet tasting to? Um, well, they're sweet tasting to the one who declares them to the people of God, but we recognize that a whole lot of people and over a long period of time are going to be suffering. They're going, to be, they're going to be 70 years in Ezekiel's time. It's going to be 70 years they're going to be in captivity. And they're going to be suffering brutally. And even when they return, it's not going to be to the grandeur that they once had. They're going to be subjugated under the nations, uh, really, for the rest of their existence until Christ comes. They're going to be subjugated. And there was some liberty there uh, during the time of the, the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, but that was very short-lived and not uh, fully... They didn't work ever fully organized as a nation. And so we find that uh, they recognize that there's a certain bitterness. And so um, there's a sweetness to it. And, and, but there's also a recognition that this is really sad. 
And so John is introduced. This has been our symbol consistently for the prophets. And this is the prophet John. And so he's told instruction, go ask for the book. Take, get the book from the angel. And so the voice from heaven that's been instructing him along tells him to do this. He goes and does what he's told. Gave me the little book. And the angel says to him, uh, I'm going to give it to you, but I have some other instructions. You have to take and eat it. The explanation is going to make your stomach better. It'll taste sweet as honey in your mouth. Um, he agrees. His experiences, it was sweet as honey in his mouth. Became bitter, and that's just a typical A B B A uh, prose tool of the Hebrew writers. And so we find um, what's entailed. What, what is the symbols here? What, what are we referencing? And again, the scrolls, the books uh, are, I'm convinced, representative of the revelation of God, of his judgment, not the revelation of his redemption. So we're going to take it from the angel and put it inside the prophet. And so these are not statements of how men are going to get redeemed. That would never become a bitterness to man. Uh, the work of Jesus Christ is not what is wrapped up in these. These are always associated in terms of the bitterness in the stomach with the fact that there is God's judgment to come. It is a sweet thing. It is necessary um, it is righteous. It is, it is just. And so there is a sweetness, but there's also recognition that there is going to be a lot of suffering. And the book isn't finished. We're in the middle of the book. The book's open, and we still have some things that aren't going to be pleasant. There's a certain bitterness about them. There's a certain um, sadness to it. And um, we're glad that we're coming to the end. We, we recognize the, the rightness of what God is doing, but we also acknowledge that this is not really what he wanted. Right? He didn't want anyone to experience this. Doesn't the Bible say that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that, that, uh, that he would remove us from his wrath? Uh, that's what God's will is, is to remove men from this outpouring of his wrath. Um, but they have rejected him, and so all that's left is this judgment. And there's a certain bitterness, a certain despair involved here, that they're really, we're past redemption. And yeah, we're, we're glad that God is going to do the just thing. But we also realize that there isn't much hope. And really we're down to a very small group of people on earth that are remotely redeemable at this point. And that would be national Israel. And so what does the book represent? Some would contend that the book represents the, the going back to the scroll and that everything we're reading from here forward is to be laid on top of what we've already read. And... Uh, that these are, these are not uh, chronologically following each other, but, but uh, simultaneous. And so there's a view that the seven bull judgments are pretty much identical to the seven trumpet judgments. Some would even go so far as to say that they are wrapped up into seven seals um, and that they are overlaid on top of each other. And this is really where we take that 
and just lap it over, and now we're going to back up and start again. There is certainly a chronological backing up at this point. We're going to see that come out strongly in chapter 12, without a doubt. Um, But uh, to reference that, therefore the bulls are the same as the trumpet judgments, I think, uh, is a mistake. Uh, That's not really what's described here. What's described here is we have an open book, which is different than what we had other places, which was a sealed scroll. Uh, uh, A scroll that was given to Ezekiel, similarly, was not an open thing. Here is an open one. We are in the midst of it. What's transpired has already been uh, read, has already been paged through, and now what is to come is going to finish off the book. Uh, and it is yet to transpire, and it is not the same, and should not be associated with what has already uh, been described. And in fact, we find very little overlap between them uh, in what they represent, and that's very different than what we see, like the the uh, association of the seals with the with the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 24, a sermon uh, in the Valley in Luke. We we find. Uh, a very different perspective and a different purpose as we're going to see in the bold judgments. The purposes there are going to uh, uh, be described for us on several occasions of why this is happening and it's really setting the stage for the Battle of Armageddon where we did not get that uh, idea out of the seven trumpets at all. And so, what is the scroll? Um, Well, verse 11 I think is gives us the content. What, what's in this book? Why do I have to eat it? Why do I have to have it in my stomach? Uh, why can't I just have it in my mouth? And again, uh, the whole idea there in Ezekiel was that um, you're going to have to persist. It's not a message that you're going to want to speak because people want to hear it. Um, if people wanted to hear it, you wouldn't have to eat of it. You just, it just wouldn't have to be a part of you. But people aren't going to want to hear it, Ezekiel's told. You're going to have to have a forehead of flint, he says. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to be beating your head against rocks. So you're going to make you out of rock. And part of that preparation for your ministry to a disobedient, rebellious, hard-hearted Israel is you're going to have to make this message of my coming judgment a part of your very being. You're going to have to digest it. You're going to have to ingest it. Uh, and put it into you that, that you cannot stop being, you can't divorce yourself from that message. It is who you are now. And John here is given that same sense that once you ingest this message, it is now who you are. And as, and as difficult as it is, as much as nobody wants to hear it, and no one in this environment is going to want to hear it, it has to be said. It has to be spoken. It has to be declared. Just like the seven thunders had to be declared. Just like the angel that's going to come with the everlasting gospel. He, he's going to do his job. Not because a whole bunch of people are going to respond and because uh, it's, going to be, it's not fun. It's not fun preaching God's judgment when nobody repents. Would you agree with that? There's, just, there's a certain bitterness to it. And we talked about that this morning. And uh, I kind of got some of my family upset, which is good, um, of just how hard-hearted we are and how we have undermined these foundations of the gospel in our age um, that we can't even begin with a premise of a creator God. We can't begin there. 
when you could have uh, every other generation and every other people group. Well, here's a hard-heartedness that you can't just give up. You can't give up because nobody wants to hear it. You have to keep preaching this. You have to keep declaring the truth, even though no one is going to respond. And that's what God told Ezekiel. No one's going to respond to you. But you've got to keep preaching this. It has to be a you have to be who you are. It has to be part of you, and there's a certain bitterness to preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and, preaching and no one responding. Uh, and that's what's going on during these seven years. They're going to be hearing the they, they will have seen Jesus to start this time off. They saw him with their own eyes in the heavens. They saw him. They have seen the outpouring of his wrath. Um, They're going to hear the thunders. They're going to hear the angel, the everlasting gospel. Um, They're going to have all this, and no one's going to respond. All we're going to find is an embittered people, with the exception of 144,000. We're going to find a resistant people that that are gnashing their teeth at God, that are cursing God, Uh, anything but repentance before him. Well, what does it take to keep preaching in that environment? Well, you have to make the message who you are. That you can't stop preaching any more than you can stop being who you are. So, verse 11 tells us what's going to happen. You can't stop. You have to finish this. You must prophesy again. And again, people use that word to say, well, he's starting over. No, he is persisting uh, in it. And there is going to be some review. We're going to go back and touch on the 144,000, the two witnesses. We're going to touch on the nations and the development. We're going to touch on the harlot. We're going to touch on these things from historical perspective. But you can't stop uh, just because the last trumpet sounds. The seventh trumpet... uh, is going to be the completion. But right now, we have got to maintain this absolute commitment to the fullness of the message of God's judgment. Do not compromise it. Do not trade it away. Uh, You must lay it on and uh, stiffen yourself for the rebellion and the resistance you're going to receive to that message. So you're going to prophesy again about, and this is interesting, the word about rather than to, about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And this is going to really push us into chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17, uh, really, and 14, and even right away in chapter 11. Uh, we're going to find out about these things. So we've seen everything. I'm going to back this up here, Ken. How do I do that? Um, everything. There we go. So we, we've seen everything from these two perspectives, um, from heaven and from earth, and, and we've seen really our focus has been upon the earthly, ele- or the heavenly elements. That's where John has been. He has seen this all coming out uh, from a heavenly perspective. Now he is going to shift gears on us. Now the prophecy is going to shift from Here's the outpouring of God in heaven, and for uh, a substantial part of what's left in the book to read is going to 
move to a different timeline. And we're going to, next week, we're going to have another timeline right here. Actually, we're going to have two, because we're going to have one for the nations and one for the harlot. And we have to have those, because the prophecy is, is not over. We're going to back way up, way, way up, where these things originated, way back here, um, after the flood. We're going to be way, up, way back here at the Tower of Babel. We're going to have the false religions. We're going to have the nations. We're going to, he says, you're going to prophesy about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You're going to have some things to share um, that are going to, again, contribute to the whole uh, work of God in judging, that the judging isn't just about nature. The angel gave us the, the nature facet. Uh, we saw him from the heavens, uh, the, the atmosphere, the earth, the sea. We see all of that. But um, it's also going to be judging the groupings that men have created since Babel, uh, of nations, peoples, tongues, and kings. Those authority structures that have been there. Uh, we're going to see that God's going to put his hand of judgment, and we're going to see a lot of that in the bold judgments. That God's going to go in and just put a hammer on them, on these authorities that have lifted, exalted themselves above God uh, and thought themselves equal with God or uh, at least able to uh, uh, resist him. And, of course, this is going to culminate in the Battle of Armageddon there and then culminate again in the Battle of Gog Magog. But uh, we find that uh, this little book... Now, let's see if I can get the little book. I don't think it'll let me get the little book. Oops. We'll get that up. There we go. Inside of John. This little book inside John, uh, he's going to have to prophesy about this. And, and there's a certain gall to it. There's a bitterness there that the nations rage against God and God laughs at them, the psalmist tells us, right? God laughs at the nations as they try to, you know, fight against him. <laughs> You're fighting against God. How dumb is that? But yet they persist. And so he's going to have to share this message where there really is no hope um, because we are past that time. All that is waiting for the nations now is destruction and, and uh, judgment. And we're going to see that played out in the form of a harlot riding a beast and these imageries that are going to be brought forward um, that John is going to have to prophesy about. So he's taking it from our heavenly perspective. We, we've done that. Hmm, let's see, I can go forward. We've done that from the heavenlies. Everything's been from this heavenly timeline and it's been poured out on the earth. But now we're going to see some of these elements within the earth, on the earth, that uh, and their relationship to God. This is not really about um, individuals' relationship with God, but the groupings of people's relationship with God. Kings, nations, languages or tribes or peoples, tongues, and so we're going to see that he's going to prophesy about that. And this really introduces us into what's to come. And it's going to start moving us backwards in time. We're not really going to get to this uh, seventh trumpet for quite a while, really. 
Uh, we're going to begin to see it. It's going to sound in chapter 11, um, but we're going to find that it opens up the temple of God um, and uh, initiates the outpouring of the bull judgments that are the final ones. So thus uh, accomplished within the last trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments are the completion of God's wrath. The message to us to go forward. Now, this is what God thinks about his message during the seven years of wrath when no one really can come to Christ. What does he think of our role today when people still can come to Christ? Are people resistant to the message? Yes. Does that mean we abandon it? Does that mean we soft-pedal it? We compromise it? Is that permissible? That we have to tweak the message to, to reach these resistant people groups? Oh, no. If anything, we have to be more committed to it. It needs to be, stop being just in our mouth and be in our gut. Um, it's got to be there, and it's a bitter message to say, you're in trouble, you're going to judgment, you have eternal uh, fire waiting for you. Uh, they've got to hear this message, and if there's any time they need to hear it, it's in these days, the last hour, that we need to recognize a commitment uh, like the prophets, that whether people want to hear it or not is no longer a relevant issue because we are told they won't hear it. We are told that as we get to the end, there's a great falling away, that people will not want to hear the truth. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, the days are coming. How are they described? They won't want to hear the truth. They'll resist it. Let me read it for you out of Timothy here. 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit expressly says in latter times, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving uh, by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So there's going to come a time when everyone's going to be compromising the message. We're going to be departing from the faith. Do we just join that crowd? No. Like Ezekiel of old, like John, um, it needs to become who we are. Is it fun? No. John's got an upset stomach. <laughs> People need to hear a message that upsets your stomach. Not just for them to hear, but for you to speak it. And to watch how they react against it. But it still has to be told. Because this is the age when they can still respond. It's going to be told in that age. God's going to make sure they know the truth when they really aren't going to respond. And we know they aren't going to respond how much more important it is that we share it now when men still can respond, when the Holy Spirit is still convicting, 
when there's still that work of the church and the gospel to um, bring godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And so much like John in that day, we in this day to make this message ours. That this is what we have to speak and we're not going to do it in a nasty, mean manner. Um, That's not what it calls us to, but a direct one, certainly. And so we're not going to go picket funerals and things like that at Westboro Baptist. We're not going to become that. That's not what it calls us to, but we have to be uncompromising this message that we have a holy, holy, holy God that you have to answer to. And you're not going to hear much else out of me. And it's going to be a broken record. And you're going to hate hearing it. In fact, you're going to they're going to hate hearing it, and you're almost going to come to the point of hating to say it, but you can't say anything else. It's part of who you are now. I think there's one more thing. Oh, I forgot to put the prophesy again words, the, the text up there. And so we're going to prophesy again, and we're going to prophesy again, and we're going to prophesy again. We're going to declare the mysteries of God. As they come to their conclusion, um, God wants it to be clear that uh, we're going to back up and we're going to reference some things about the nations. We're going to find out where people groups come from. We're going to look at kings. We're going to talk about those um, because they all play into the final judgments, especially we associate it mostly with the Bible of Armageddon, but it's really involved in the bold judgments too of what's coming uh, among the nations of the earth. So, good transitional chapter. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Close off. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and we thank you again for this testimony that uh, you will continue to pursue your truth to be declared and uh, to be a part of your prophets. And Lord, we want to be a count among that number of those that serve your message with all that we are. And Lord, we see a great resistance around us, but that cannot dissuade us if we are truly your followers. And Lord, we uh, do pray you might give us an understanding of the balance of this book as you have uh, given it to John and recognizing that it now uh, takes on a very significant relevance for us as we consider our place among the nations and among our peoples and those who speak our language and those that rule over us that we might understand and recognize the dangers that are there and be a part, be be different to uh, separate ourselves. I pray for your wisdom in that, in the balance of study in Christ Jesus' name.